0: Welcome to the faculty podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50 plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keen, and our professor of systematic theology, Gray Sutanto. Uh, Paul Jean is not with us this week. He is abroad on a church missions trip, and we look forward to having him back with us next week. And Dr. Peter Lee, our professor of Old Testament, is still on sabbatical, sabbatting, as it were, ceasing uh, for a period of time, but we look for, forward to him being restored to us uh, in the spring semester of this year. So today we're going to keep looking at the Ten Commandments as they are found both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and this time we've come to the Eighth Commandment. Uh, which deals with the issue of property and the rightful treating and respecting of property. And it's in one of those short staccato commandments that we have here in the Ten Commandments. And it just says in merely two words in Hebrew, but translated into our English, thou shalt not steal. So this is covering, as we've been saying with the rest of the Ten Commandments, this is covering as a rubric, sort of a whole variety of issues. And the Westminster Larger Catechism lays those out, including everything from honoring contracts to duly restoring to those who have lost uh, their property, duly restoring them, being moderate in our judgments, uh, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits. So there's a whole series of issues, a whole variety of topics and activities that are covered in the Westminster Larger Catechism under this rubric of not stealing. So I want to start off first with this conversation. What's the importance of a commandment like this today? And how do we uh this could be a broader, broader part of our conversation can be how do we get from these two words thou shalt not steal to this whole panoply of activities that we find discussed here in the larger catechism
1: you know it's talking about the relevance of this commandment for today of just looking at the larger catechism looking at the breadth of application here both positively and negatively i mean i think we've said this before we said this kind of in the section on uh, obey your parents uh, or honor, honor your father and mother where where we talked about uh, the sins of the inferiors and the sins of the superiors and and all of these kinds of things but it's just a reminder you, you know looking at the larger catechism we we have a, a, a almost a study guide to social justice here I, I mean some of these phrases are are amazing like um i should endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure preserve and further the wealth and outward estate of others. I mean, if we started doing that, a lot of, uh, a lot of our social problems would begin to, to dissipate, like if that was our basic concern. Um, likewise, uh, kind of in the negative, um, it forbids a defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate, which God had given us. It's, it's, it's really remarkable set of, of commandments here.
2: Yeah, and I think what comes through here, Tommy, you kind of touched on this is the unity between all of the commandments, they, they really do hang together. And it reminds you of what Jesus had said that you can summarize the commandments by saying that you should love the Lord your God and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so this commandment not to steal goes in line with the other command about honoring your superiors and being a good superior and honoring your inferior. It goes hand in hand with preserving life and, and not killing. It also goes hand in hand with chastity. I, I'm uh, amazed at the way in which they included things like frugality and making sure that you keep things that is appropriate to who you are. And I'm guessing that means you know, you're, you're fine, a finite creature and you should therefore live in such a way where you are um, sustaining yourself well, but yet at the same time, not in luxury and not in abundance that is not befitting to who you are. So there, there's so much unity here and you're right that there's so much social concern and the Westminster larger catechism. I think sometimes the reform tradition, whether in the Puritan or scholastic sort of expression of it, has been caricatured as sort of too heavenly minded, caring only about, you know, the salvation of your souls and, and, and not so much else. But really what you see here is a whole public ethic that really cares about humanity in their concrete social relationships and in the mundane realities of life. And it even mentions the use of, well, forbidding the use of false weights and things like that in your uh, commerce. And, uh, so it, it's really nitty gritty here in terms of his detail of social relationships.
1: The orienting concern in uh, in question 141 is the duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man. Like that central concern that the relationships that we establish with one another we've talked about these kind of up down relationships and in, in father and mother uh, intimate relationships with adultery and now it's kind of like the these common relationships that constitute the rest of, of social functioning the, these relationships should be characterized by faithfulness and justice in in every area and, it, and then concluding then with my basic orienting principle to how i relate to the two others in these kinds of relationships is I bless them. I, I seek their flourishing before my own.
2: Yeah. And seeking their flourishing in terms of their wealth and outward estate as well, not just the flourishing of the soul or anything sort of yeah. overtly right. heavenly or anything like that. It's, it's, it's very attentive to this psychosomatic unity of the human being.
0: There's a, you know, this aspect of the two commandments, particularly Deuteronomy being kind of a, You know, table of contents for the rest of the book. And if that, you know, reading strategy for Deuteronomy is correct, then the section of laws that are dealing with, you know, stealing starts in Deuteronomy 23, probably around 19, verse 19 or so, and goes on to chapter 24. And it's interesting, you know, even there, the, the laws that are included under that have to do with charging exploitational or exploitative interest, not paying back loans. Uh, trespassing in your neighbor's vineyard. You know, all of these things are included as kind of practical applications of what it means not to steal. And again, you can see where the larger catechism gets this idea of basically honoring contracts, you know, and recognizing that there's a certain dignity to human relationships. And I think this is an outpouring of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? You're going to your neighbor and you're saying you have dignity you are deserving of love and of honor and treating them accordingly. And that means not just negatively protecting yourself, you know, using rights language, but also positively, you know, uh, you know, giving to them, having a duty to your neighbor and, and wanting them to be whole as we've been discussing, you know, wanting them to flourish. And so often that's the critique that's the allegation that these covenantal lawyers, the prophets bring against the people, that their idolatry or their, their lack of faith, their syncretism, their mixing of Yahwistic and other gods in worship, that leads the people to an exploitation of others. In other words, for the prophets idolatry quickly flows into exploitation and that's usually articulated in terms of financial exploitation you know those are the scales that are weighted so that the person who owns the scales the the person who is the administrative authority can exploit those who do not have scales right or can steal from the weak and from the disenfranchised those who have nothing to offer in society that that is in, in in the you know the common term for that or phrase for that is the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner, in uh, in in the Pentateuch and in the prophets. You know, again, this is all sort of connected to how you think about God. Uh, you know, do you love God? Do you honor Him rightly? And if so, do you love and honor those made in His image rightly by treating them with dignity in these interactions and seeking their 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 own growth and their their positive development?
2: Yeah, and I think one of the words that's really Uh, stuck out to me was the word of faithfulness, this idea of preserving the truth and faithfulness and justice and contracts and commerce between man and man, which is kind of a foreshadowing of the, the, the commandment not to lie for next time. But really this idea that you should keep your word to your fellow man, because this is actually something that is their just dessert. You have to respect the image of God that is within them, and you have to deal with your fellow man in commerce, in faithfulness, and, and saying what you mean and keeping to that word is incredibly important to, to uphold our relationships together.
0: It can be very difficult, I think. I mean, even as someone who's, you know, administers a, a, an organization like Reformed Theological Seminary, we have a lot of contracts. We have a lot of re- relationships with people and partnerships that make, uh, make demands on us as an organization. And... and Uh, have reciprocal demands on the organization that we're in the partnership with. And it's easy to start thinking, Oh, how do I just protect my position in this relationship? How do I merely just protect what I'm trying to do and not consider what is, you know, what is the, what is the goal? What's the overarching goal of this partnership? How does this advance the kingdom? And that's really a beautiful thing, actually, when you enter into those relationships with people to come to them and say, I know the contract only requires this of me, but I'd really like to see, you know, how the kingdom of God can be advanced in this by giving you more than the contract requires. Or, 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 or you know, how do, I, how do I actually, you know, show you and, and, and honor you and your position in this by seeking a way that you can grow? Maybe, maybe even a way that's beyond what you had anticipated when you went, went into the contract right because you were thinking at a certain level and weren't thinking at what what more was available there this to me is kind of the the essence of christian ethics and biblical ethics is again as we talked about before you know to use paul's language in philippians too, you know being christ-minded in that we are disadvantaging ourselves for the advantage of the other
1: yeah and the, and in so many respects the way the world works uh, you know, this is no more or less true now than it was back then. But the way the world works is set up to make that extremely challenging. You know, that there's both that internal temptation to work for mammon rather than the glory of God, and and that's something that we have to crucify daily. But there's also that this external pressure that the way we should think about wealth is a hedge of protection around us, um, and so. If that's how I think about wealth, if I think about my the material blessings as a way that I protect myself, a way that i the way that I prepare, the way that I protect my kids, all all of these kinds of things, then suddenly charity becomes a you know an opening, a way in which the world can 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 hack hack against me and 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 tear tear me down. Um, I like how Paul gives us a different metaphor in First Corinthians. He talk, talks about money not as uh, a hedge of protection or a wall or uh, or bricks in bricks in your building or whatever, but he talks about it as seed. And of course, you 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 hoard seed and it's not going to do anything. But uh, the purpose is to go out and to plant it. And and until until it is planted, it cannot flourish and and provide you know, a return. Um, that's been a helpful metaphor for me when I think about the need to give the and, and cultivating my desire to be generous is to think about uh, wealth and money as a seed,
2: seed that until it's planted cannot return a fruit. And I think part of the, the key to understanding how you use property, how you handle property, how you treat one another and kind of motivation to give um others in in such a way where you care about their financial and well being is this phrase i think that's incredibly augustinian which is in the larger catechism question 142 where it forbids inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods in other words the way in which we can treat other people justly and, and the way in which we can care about them in such a way where we do not lord property for ourselves, where we can actually share things is by ordering our desires properly, right? That ultimately, these worldly goods are not to be first and primary, and they're supposed to be subordinate goods, penultimate goods, and God is still the highest good. So ironically, I mentioned before that the confession is really interested in our social relationships. Tommy, you mentioned as well, social justice, and things like that. But the way to get at proper social relationships is by ordering ourselves toward God who is in the heavenly places, right? And by keeping our attention there, we can therefore, again, not lord over these things, but rather be faithful with the way we have our property and with the way we give, therefore, to our neighbor.
0: That's great. You know, you read this in light of just sort of, you know, the current economic options for economic systems that we see around us. And you, you have kind of on the one side, the, the capitalist notion of the market and on the other side you'd have something like an extreme form of communism or something along those lines and i'm i'm just struck as an aside you know how often the scripture is laying out something that's not playing into one of these extremes or the other now on the on, on the side that the, you know affirming a kind of capitalism is that there's a clear notion here of property there's a clear notion that something can be stolen right and freedom
1: say what's that and, and free freedom, you know, as well, property and then the free exercise thereof.
0: Yeah, right. And that you should be able not only to have property, but to right not have it taken from you for some reason. Right. And yet on the same side, on the other side of it is that it's not it's not all about just protecting you from being robbed but as you look at the whole variety of behaviors that are described under this commandment that it's also about duty to others so it's not a rights system merely though there is a rights there are rights because there's property but there's also this notion of duty right and the duty is not a leisure activity which is how i think a lot of people think about today it's not my duty to give ph- philanthropically is kind of like well that's if i have some time and some something left over and if it appeals to my social conceits or something like that or my social sensibilities but that you know active righteousness toward the neighbor is actually what you will be judged for in scripture not only in the old but also in the new you know jesus is saying in matthew 25 when i gather everyone together one of the ways that you'll be able to distinguish my people from the from others is how they actively blessed in material ways, people around them. Right. You know, so this is not a small thing. It's not a leisure activity or an add on to us protecting our rights, but that it's actually for Christians, it's central to Christian activity. And yet it's not, so it's not a communism and it's not a straight capitalistic system either in terms of Christian ethics. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a very life-giving system that I think actually both protects the poor and meaning that they can actually have property that that they can grow and develop and, um, you know, use as a kind of, you know, carnal means of protection, I guess. But at the same time, so they're protected from being robbed or being stolen from. And at the same time, though, you can't merely live in that space of a defensive, you know, a kind of defensive stance, but you have to be geared towards the benefit of others. And in the Old Testament, there's this language of tzedek, meaning kind of public justice and tzedekah, meaning something like perhaps charity or something along those lines of sort of establishing people to um, a position that is righteous and reflective of their character in God. And, you know, you really have to have both of these elements in mind when you're dealing with a biblical ethic of property.
1: Yeah, to underline that, that that Old Testament ethic, you see that in the New Testament as well, of course, but Jesus' obvious concern for the poor, which comes out especially in Luke's gospel. Uh, We have in Matthew, we are told, blessed are the poor in spirit, but of course Luke has blessed are the poor, and the intent there seems to be to highlight not just the spiritual aspect of humility and charity, but the actual physical, tangible aspect of seeking, as you as you put it, Scott, to disadvantage myself in order to advantage the other. My my resources for your flourishing kind of idea, um, and then on the condemnatory angle, James five comes to mind. Here here you've got come now you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, um, and the logic there is an eschatological logic that. Because judgment is coming, wealth cannot flourish into eternity apart from uh, apart from charity, apart from righteousness, apart from justice, and and these kinds of and these kinds of concerns. So, uh, if you if you sow uh, in this world only, you will be uh, w- what you reap will be taken will be taken from you. That kind of eschatological reversal, and so it's again that encouragement to consider. To what end am i putting wealth is it to the king Is ultimately about the kingdom of god or is it about self-protection or or advancement in this in this age only
0: we just got done doing james in you know, a women's bible study that we offer here and um we kept coming back to this idea of stewardship you know it's such a key idea and as we're talking about property of course it's it's key there and, and you just gave the definition of stewardship right you know this is not as if this money has been given to you. And what pri- and what private property means is that therefore you cannot be held responsible for what you do with it or something like that. It, does, it can't mean that, it, it, it must mean something else. And for the Christian, what it means is that, as the old hymn says, praise God from whom all blessings flow, this bl- financial blessing that you're enjoying is something that has been given to you on loan, right? It's, it's, it's meant to be used for the benefit of the kingdom. And that's what we should be thinking about when we're considering our wealth. Um, And that can be, that can be, you know, providing a, a healthy living for your family and for your children and protecting them in light of the resources you've been given. That's, that's definitely true. But I think often we kind of end with that and, uh, and yeah, it's just great to think of your financial and all of your assets in that regard, you know, whether it's relational in DC, this is a town where relational currency is more important. It's oftentimes yeah. a financial currency, you know, are you using that to the benefit of the kingdom or maybe maybe you're a creative, maybe you're somebody who is really great, you know, in design or in art or in writing, you know, are you using that? Are you recognizing that as a gift that's meant to be stewarded for the sake of the kingdom?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, stewardship. That's such a great, uh, a great kind of concept to to build on. I love that, and and you know, and, and it solves another problem as well. The, the catechism goes on to talk about how I shouldn't be uh, envious of other people's position or other people's status or wealth, and which is obviously you know the covetousness and envy. Those are extremely prevalent sins for all for all of us. I would suspect. How do I cultivate or how do i sanctify get get sanctified in in areas like that well part of it is changing the narrative a little bit rather than look look at their mountain of money um i start to think no these are gifts that i'm supposed to steward and so i i have been given gifts for me to steward and they've been given gifts for them to steward and and these are both from the lord and the goal is ultimately uh you know, that, that, that idea of returning to the Lord, that which he has given, you know, given unto me.
2: So say someone here is is reading the Westminster larger catechism on this particular commandment, it it does say their particular words like frugality and frugality is one of those really difficult words. I think, especially as we minister to people, they might be asking the questions, you know, how do we determine frugality? Do we follow the sort of, you know, the the older trajectories of monastic Franciscanism that really disavowed private property altogether? Or, you know, what does this look like today? What does it look like to be frugal and how do we determine that?
1: Well, and especially for pastors, I mean, how many boats can one pastor own? I think that's an important, an important question.
2: Yeah. Can we have a private jet if the private jet doesn't have an entertainment system? So that's the frugality. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah,
0: that's a good question. The question of frugality, I think, is one that for me is one that I'm constantly revisiting. And my wife and I and our family are constantly revisiting. Like, what does frugality mean in every situation? And it's actually kind of an active conversation in our house because you're never quite sure. It's you know, it's hard, it's hard to know. Is this something that's really kind of a necessary blessing and enjoyment of the riches that we enjoy uh, as meager as they are perhaps in ministry, <laughs> but, you know, is it that, or is this, is this going too far? You know, and, and it's hard to ask yourself that question. This is often kind of like, I often feel like, uh, you know, the the psalmist in Psalm 139 saying, Lord, you, you need to show me because I don't know if I have the tools necessarily to tell when something is, is excessive in a sinful way versus just enjoying the fruit of labor but I think those are good. Those are good paradigms to begin with is what, you know, what, what do we need? What's, I mean, a real need, not, not like my daughter who says she needs an iPhone 13, but uh, like a real need. Okay. You know, what, what exactly is, is, is what, you know, uh, is, is kind of creating the conditions for a healthy development within the context in which we're living and serving. You know, and, and those might be different things for different people because of uh, different strengths and weaknesses, you know. And so I think you actually have to sit down and ask yourself, is this something that is that is feeding my desire to control the world around me by purchasing? and And, and commercial transactions can very much be addictive. You know, there can be an endorphin release that happens when you make a transaction people talk about this all the time this shows up in the church people who are compulsive purchase purchasers and that sort of thing and yet at the same time you have to ask yourself wait a minute am I being cheap am I being cheap with those around me you know one thing I think you can ask is are you very frugal when it comes to helping other people but you're not frugal when it comes to helping yourself Mm -hmm. Um, and those are those are hard questions and I think that's one of those those things we have to really kind of be aware of your heart and going to the Lord in prayer, and most importantly, have people around you who know you and can help you think through, okay, is this wise, is this frugal, or is this something else?
1: There's some other kinds of, like, especially when you start thinking about stewardship as a concept, like you mentioned earlier, Scott, hedges and protections that you can put, like, I mean, just the idea that frugality is a com- is a commandment, uh, is something to be pursued, a value to be sought after, is just a reminder that my goal isn't to buy the best of everything that I can buy. Like There is a princi- principled restraint in the way I use capital, the way I use the assets that God gives, gives to me. And it may be, like you mentioned earlier, Scott, it may be financial. It also might be look i've got the I've got the relational cred to to get what I want in this situation, but that's not the goal. I need to defer to other people. It might, it might be something like that that relational aspect or that relational asset that you have. but that restraint is a value in in, in any of these
2: kinds of decisions. I think one of the ways that it helped me anyway in terms of thinking about frugality is the the whole sweep of the biblical narratives to talk about all these different characters who come to the Lord and all their different ways of life. And yet, frugality might look different for each particular individual to their respective callings, right? So you have Paul on the one hand, who's a tent maker, lives very humbly, and then you have Lydia, the seller of purple goods. And then, of course, all of the particular Old Testament narratives as well, which shows that frugality can be applied, but it's not necessarily going to be uniform to every single particular family. Yeah. Do you remember, Gray? Well, you're not on Twitter, Gray. So you might not
1: remember. There was I'm on this, Twitter there was
2: vicariously. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> there, was this, there was this trend, I think it's still going on, you know, where uh, people are posting kind of the luxury shoes that the Prosperity Preacher is wearing or the luxury watch. And somebody took this this trend and, and showed a picture of John Piper with his 1967 Casio you know, watch that sells for, you know, 16 on, dollars on Amazon or whatever. And it was, it, you know, it was a reminder to me of, and and some people know, like the John Piper story and like he donates all his royalties and all of these kinds of things. That's, I think that's another just practical area where we can practice restraint. Like I, you know, how do I think about wealth and money and status do i think about it as something i deserve or something that god has given to me and if it's something that god's given to me then i need to be principled and restrained about how i use it because it doesn't properly
2: belong to me in the end right so it's, it's back to stewardship once again right mm-hmm. um I had a conversation recently with a friend at church and, and in ministry here in jakarta you're, you're always in touch with sort of the big big Asian families who are very interested in maintaining a certain level of, of work for their family and also therefore a certain level of uh, wealth succession according to their family and and sometimes there could be some controversial issues uh, so one particular instance you know we might hear about families or ministry to families who've denied their son or daughter to marry someone from a particular lower social economic class or something like that and oftentimes, immediately you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, this is anti-gospel, this is bad. You know, the, Clearly, social economic status shouldn't be what matters, ultimately, is whether or not both parties in the marriage uh, are in the Lord. But um, one of the things that, that one of my fellow pastors here, Joe Bynum, uh, said to me was what helped him navigate through that was that he was understanding that the grandparents here is not so much looking at the other person and denying them the daughter or the son to marry this person because simply because their social economic status but they were thinking of, of it in terms of stewardship like if i've worked very hard such that my family could have this sort of company to work for how can i make sure that the person that my son or daughter marries can help steward this company well as well if that makes sense so it's not so much that he was looking down his nose onto someone else who's of a lower financial status, but but it's it's more so about thinking about the, the generational sort of stability of that sort of stewardship. That's really what was motivating this sort of patriarch of the family, if that makes sense, or matriarch of the family, whatever. So that, that happens quite a bit in Asia and it's really difficult to navigate through that because on the one hand, yes, Ultimately, what, what matters in marriage is that both parties are in the Lord. But, but I can also begin to sympathize with this person who is trying to steward his, his, his family well and also his wealth well in such a way where he could maintain the jobs that he's already been giving out in this big company that he has, let's say. And perhaps this, this marriage, in his view, could jeopardize that future stability. So it's, it's a very complicated issue. And I wonder, I wonder what we make of that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, there's an analogy to that in the west i'm sure there's a direct analogy to that in the west that i'm not aware of because i'm not in that conversation (laughs) but there's also an analogy to that in the west of just um you know ceos running companies and sometimes these conversations about the ceo and the company and i'm not talking about the, the ceo's income or compensation but rather decisions a ceo makes to protect the company And it's kind of presented as if it's a selfish decision because that person is the CEO. And oftentimes that those conversations happen without an awareness of the fact of all of the people who work at that company. Right. And that that's part of the CEO's responsibility is not merely doing work for those outside of the company but also actually protecting and caring for those within the company you know and may perhaps making decisions that put the company in a stronger position but that also benefits the people who are there working for the company from the from the top level down to the bottom not not presenting ceos as always uh you know innocent in their intentions and that's definitely not the case but well well i think you have to ask those questions that get down to who's affected by the decision being made. And it's often not as obvious as you might think. We like we like to think of things as sort of simple binary decisions and uh, between a right and a wrong, but they're often not. It's it's oftentimes, you know, you're weighing the interests of a group of people versus the interests of another group of people. And you're trying to think, how do I do this well in a way that, that increases flourishing? And, and as, as a, you know, sort of a net a net source of good in the world. And that can actually be kind of hard, particularly when you're dealing with a large level of administration, uh, ministering of uh, a large organization or a company, or of course, even in public policy or a church for that matter. You know, how, how are these decisions going to affect people who may not be immediately represented in the, in the, you know, in whatever decision you have in front of you. And I can get that. I get how that can be a difficult that can be a difficult question we have to be careful coming from the outside thinking we understand all the implications and the complications of a decision and recognize a lot of times we don't we don't have all the information when we're evaluating these things and yet again, we should be guided for those of us who are making those decisions and sometimes you know we're all making decisions for ourselves and for our families and some for organizations and churches you know you have um, you have your conscience and you hopefully have wise Counselors around you who can cut through where your conscience is deceived, you know, and can help you make decisions that are um, that are just and, you know, uh, cognizant of all the people who are be who will be affected by its consequences.
1: We should do an episode on the conscience.
0: Yeah.
2: I think that's good
0: i don't know that's you're, you're that's really you brought that up and as you're talking about it gray i thought huh i that that's never occurred to me and then i realized no actually i think that kind of has and, but it's not the yeah. family situation it's in more of the you know yeah who you're bringing on and what you're doing as an organization when you talk right. about now an industry or a company being attached to the family leadership
2: right yeah you know? that's that's exactly right so so in these sort of contexts like you know the son or the daughter would be direct leaders in the family business and things like that so who they marry the kind of image that brings up and things like that it really matters to the company so it, it becomes a way for us to not necessarily agree with every decision but to sympathize with those sort of cases it is a this is a tougher one to discuss than i expected
0: well yeah maybe i i think part of it is it is difficult it's partly because maybe the things that we talked about for the first 15, 20 minutes are the obvious applications of them, and then yeah. we started thinking through all of the different ways in which these show up, the, these issues arise, and that's where it does get a little bit more difficult because you're you're both talking about your own personal experience and you're also recognizing that wait a minute, uh, my personal experience is not normative for everyone else, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. An example I thought of, Gray, to go back. I, I mean, I was thinking about your um, your comment about older academics and those who encourage the younger versus those who kind of block out the younger, that in many ways is having to do with how you steward what you have, right? That issue is very much a stewardship issue. And I think about that. I have friends who are really great at networking and bringing together different people with different strengths and just being really generous with their relationships in that way. And that's a gift that they have that they have to steward themselves. Interestingly, I feel like I struggle with that gift. I often have a hard time when someone says, who would be good at this? I I kind of blank out. I'm like, I'm having a hard time. I don't, they don't have that gift as well as others do. And Mm -hmm. I wish I did, but when I see them using it well, it makes me want to be more generous and think about how to be better at doing that,
1: Mm -hmm. you know?
0: And at the same time, also be thankful for them that they're being generous with this gifting that they have, which is the gift of kind of interpersonal networking. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I have a family member who's just great at that. He's just always connecting people together. And I just, I, I celebrate it and also realize I'm just not that good at it, but I wish I was, I wish I was better. You know, then you think about academics as, you know, are we using, are you using the reputation or the position that you have to bring up others who maybe don't have the gifts that you have? in terms mm-hmm. of renown or reputation or experience or whatever those things are, you helping people do that. And um, yeah, it makes it challenges me to not just become complacent in how I'm using my, my resources and what the Lord's given yeah. me. And uh, a lot of these issues that we sometimes think of as just personality issues are often, I think more sort of stewardship issues.
2: Yeah. And are we willing to, lift up others and, and further their careers or academic reputation whatever else even if they're actually the ones that disagree with your scholarship yeah right yeah
0: that's absolutely right yeah are you willing to also uh it may be a little closer to home for some is are you able to recede while the younger generation you know kind of steps forward and takes the mantle are you willing to step back and let right. that happen naturally by the way, all, all, all of us fathers have to deal with the same issue, too. That's the same thing. You have to be willing to kind of step back and let the younger generation take the mantle. And that's, that can be really hard for some people. That also is a stealing issue. It's a matter of stealing, I would argue, <laughs> under, the, uh, under the Ten Commandments, to being generous with position, responsibility. As Westminster Larger Catechism indicates, there are a whole lot of issues that are covered in this one short commandment that is the Eighth Commandment about stealing. And so if you have any questions that you'd like to bring up, we'd love to revisit these issues in the future. Please go to our podcast notes, the show notes. And in there, you can see a link to where you can ask a question uh, at the RTS website. If you'd like to know more about RTS Washington, please go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. Please also don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast, the faculty podcast, wherever good quality podcasts are provided. Uh, Please go and do that. And please don't forget to spread the word about the faculty podcast. We'd love to have others enjoy this content as we do. Brothers, it's been great talking to you. I look forward to getting back together and talking next time. Until then, take care. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. I'm joined here. Oh, there, I forgot my name. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary at (laughs) Art.
1: Mondays.
0: Yeah.